Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. So welcome to week two of Sydney University's annual Festival of Change, where we discuss listen, learn and celebrate a range of people and initiatives that focus on critical issues in our communities and innovative approaches to creative, positive social and economic change. This week, we focus on sustainable regional development. How can regional economies and towns prosper now and into the future? The success and sustainability in the regions look different to capital cities. And what are some of the crucial factors driving regional economies during this turbulent period in history as we navigate the effects of the global pandemic on supply chains, markets and individual businesses? Uh, today I'm joined by a very experienced panel and this looks to be a very exciting conversation today. Uh, so I'm happy to welcome uh, Amanda Hale, uh, Professor John Roth and Matt Stein. Dr. Cahill is the founder and CEO of The Next Economy. Uh, Amanda spent over two decades working with and inspiring people across Australia, Asia and the Pacific to create positive change on issues as diverse as economic development, public health, gender equality and climate adaptation. So really big uh, portfolio there, Amanda. Uh, Amanda's focus is to support communities, government, industry and others and to develop a more resilient, just and regenerative economy. Most of this work involves supporting regional communities in Australia to strengthen their economies by embracing the transition to zero emissions. Amanda completed her PhD at the Australian National University on participatory action research approaches to economic development in the Philippines. She's an adjunct professor at the University of Queensland, an industry fellow at the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney, and a 2020 Churchill Fellow. Welcome, Amanda. Uh, John Rolfe is a resource economist and a noted professor of regional economic development at the School of Business and Law at our university, CQ University. He's also a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. John was one of the leaders in the 2013 and 2018 Great Barrier Reef Science Consensus Statement, and he chairs the Independent Science Panel for the Glacier Healthy Harbour Partnership. John was Editor-in-Chief of the Australian Journal of Agricultural and Resource Economics from 2013 to 2017 and is President of the Australian Agricultural and Resource Economic Society in 2019. Welcome, John, to the discussion. Thank you. And our last speaker, uh, and who is very uh, prodigious, uh, is Matt Stein. He's the Chief Innovation and Investment Officer for the City of Townsville, where he leads the portfolios for Digital City Strategy Innovation and Smart Precinct North Queensland. Prior to joining the City of Taxville, Matt managed innovative financing, entrepreneurship and technology within Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Much of Matt's career was seen in working in emerging markets, including managing Pakistan, Vietnam and Bangladesh for Facebook and co-founding the Global Mobile Identity Program for the GSMA. 
Matt also co-founded a social enterprise putting mobile phones into the hands of women micro-entrepreneurs in the Philippines and Indonesia. So as I'm sure everyone will agree, today's panel is a very notable panel, very uh, senior panel of experts, and we look forward to some great interaction today. So recently, the Queensland State Government released its economic recovery plan, outlining six key priorities, including backing small business, growing manufacturing across new and traditional industries, driving investment in infrastructure, investing in skills, and importantly, growing the regions to attract people, talent, and investment while driving sustainable economic prosperity. The plan paints a picture of a strong state with more than 84 billion in exports, courtesy of a large resource sector. And yesterday, the government launched a mini budget in which it declared it would invest in small business renewables and job creating projects across the state, uh, which would appear to be more than New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania combined. Of course, there will be challenging times and the government now forecasts 100 billion in debt and record unemployment but it still believes it can deliver a very confident and sustainable future. So I'm interested as a starting point, how true will this be for all of Queensland? Does prosperity and growth depend on where you're located? Will government spend be metropolitan based or can the regions who often generate much of the state's wealth expect to see much more investment? And perhaps if I open up as a, an interesting point uh, with Matt, um, so how do you see COVID and this impacting on the future for the Townsville region? Alistair, thanks for your kind introduction um, and the great question. And I'd obviously like to acknowledge my fellow panellists as having great domain expertise. I think to talk about COVID and the effect on regional economies, we probably need to have a broad understanding of the trends pre-COVID and what the drivers were that were impacting the ongoing future of regional economies in Queensland and Australia versus our metropolitan cousins. I think for a long time over Australia's broad sort of economic growth and development, we've seen the uptake um, and increase in jobs, particularly in the services sector around, and then particularly around the knowledge economy. Before COVID, I think we continue to see um, some of the most capable and most talented people being attracted to businesses um, that were taking on high growth challenges and opportunities. Um, and unfortunately for regional Australia, a lot of that was clustering in um, metro areas. Um, now, I think through both strategic planning um, and now this wonderful opportunity that COVID has presented, um, it has effectively reduced the advantages that being in a densely populated um, metropolitan city have created. Um, and it's highlighted the opportunities both for resilience, but also ongoing sustainability of having dispersed populations coupled with the great investment in ICT and specifically the NBN, we certainly see that that, that connectivity um, coupled with the incredible lifestyle that COVID is probably presenting new opportunities for us, if only we can make sure we are adapting quickly enough to take advantage of them. John, I wonder if I move to you, how are you seeing 
particularly the central Queensland region in terms of uh, its development and, and possibly in taking on Matt's point of uh, COVID, sort of removing some of the advantages of the metropolitan region. Are you seeing similar things or do you have a different perspective? Oh, similar things. So uh, the regions have generally not suffered as badly as the urban areas uh, with COVID. And that's partly because uh, populations more spread out, not the same amount of controls and partly because we don't have as big a services sector. We're more reliant on you know, other sectors, such as the resources base, which have tended to tick over as normal. But looking forward, um, there's, there's pluses and minuses um, that are emerging. So, so some of the pluses, of course, are that I think we're learning to work remotely in Australia, and that is freeing up some of our population to be based outside of urban areas. And that's where... I think what Matt talked about, getting the services and the infrastructure so that people can work remotely is really critical because even if only 5% of the workforce moves out of urban areas into regions, that will be a game changer in terms of regional development in Australia. But against that, we're also seeing some other forces at play. So a lot of people have got used to online shopping, for instance, uh, and a lot of people have got used to getting services more remotely so it means that people don't necessarily have to have their local shop or their, or their local supermarket providing the same level of services we used to. And the online um, services, online shopping, that's going to tend to be based in the big urban areas. So we've got these opposing forces going on at the moment, and it's not really clear how it will play out over time. Um, to what extent will workforces work remotely and to what extent will service delivery and shopping delivery move to online. Those are just two of the challenges going on at the moment. Uh, and that's a really interesting one. I, I, I noticed, um, for instance, uh, if you travel around cities like Rockhampton, you'll see a, a, a significant increase in the number of retail spaces that have actually closed as a consequence of COVID. Maybe if I can flick back to Matt just for a second before we come to Amanda, maybe to, to, to delve into that question a bit more. Matt, are you seeing in the, the retail spaces around uh, Townsville much change or is, is there still room to grow for retail space in the region? I think my broader perspective on retail is that there were ongoing trends um, that were challenging the viability um, and ultimately the value that taking something that was produced somewhere else, unpacking it, putting it on a shelf, paying for real estate and having somebody come and access that locally. I think that broader trend has been accelerated by COVID, there is also a shift towards people wanting to have locally produced um, content. And I think that goes for food. I think it goes for clothes. I think it goes for experiences. Um, and at the same time that we've seen this rise in digitization, we are seeing a democratization through platforms, the big platforms like Amazon, um, and Alibaba and others, Gumtree even, for example. And I think as we help local businesses transition to be able to make the most of those online opportunities, we may see the resurgence of that idea of the local craftsperson um, across that range of um, items. And then the ability for them when you're regional 
not to just only think about serving your local small population, but to think about an addressable market that is global. And I think that presents a great opportunity for us as well. So um, whilst it can be a difficult transition for some, I think it is one that we needed to make longer term. And I think as long as um, we can support businesses in making that transition, I think there's some great upside. Great, thank you. Um, Amanda, just if we can bring you in at this point in time, you, you do a lot of consulting around the state uh, with government and with industry. What, what sort of trends are you seeing emerge uh, as, a, as a consequence of COVID? Yeah, I think John and Matt have made a good point that a lot of the things that we're seeing actually were trends that were already starting. Um, the other things I'd throw in there, it was increasing automation that we're seeing, even in the resources sector, which is actually reducing jobs in that sector. But also the opportunities, I guess, and Matt sort of touched on this. So we're entering into a new phase where if you've got the digital technology in place and the marketplaces in place, you've got local infrastructure around things like renewable energy, so cheap energy sources and good transport infrastructure set up can open up new industries and that relocalization of a lot of that processing and manufacturing that already happens across regional Queensland is often invisible in the discussion. So there's an opportunity to actually reduce prices. There's circular economy coming in in terms of waste. So that idea instead of waste, it's actually how do we recover resources locally and reuse them in different ways. And the internet of things as well. How do we hook things up so that information and energy can flow efficiently across the region? So this, this can be seen as very exciting, but it's also very threatening for people. And I think we need to have much more of a public conversation around what does that change mean for regions? How do we prepare workforces? What's the role of regional universities in working with industry to, to develop the skills that we need? And how do we address a lot of the skills shortages that are already there in terms of digital technology, finance, um, health services, and, and things like that as well? So what I found um, in the last year, we've consulted about 500 people across the state is um, there's actually a lot of awareness of the changes that are happening, but there's also a lot of fear um, so actually bringing people together to go, well, what are your strengths in this place? Where are the gaps? And how do we fill those gaps? What's the role of universities? What's the role of government and industry? And actually thinking about how we plan for that change over time instead of it happening really suddenly overnight. So in the, and, and I'd like to unpack that perhaps a little bit more. Is there a role for government or is, is really is the private sector driving those things? One of the things that Matt talked about was the sort of opportunities things change. Uh, and so do, does government have a role to play? Because what you see in these changing economies with automation and technology, but there are players who rise to the fore with others who haven't been able to adapt as well who fall in. Does the market get left to run its course? Does government have a role to drive that in the right direction or is there a combination of both? What sort of things are you finding in the conversations you're having? Yeah, so we didn't just consult with industry, we consulted with government, so all levels of government, industry, um, social service groups, unions, environment groups, community organisations, um, but the majority of people were industry or government related. Um, the interesting thing that came out of it actually, which really surprised me in a couple of forums, was industry advocating for a role for government. And actually across all of the forums, whether it was community-focused or closed-door industry roundtable, was a really interesting discussion about uh, democracy and where government has been letting people down and, the, and industry players saying, there's only so much we can do 
unless there's so there's a role for government in things like investing in large-scale infrastructure that things like the NBN or large-scale trend energy transmission infrastructure, industry can't build that on its own. Um, things like having the right legislation and regulation in place, this was industry advocating for that, which really surprised me, but to actually level the playing field and actually make sure the right standards are in place. Doing long-term workforce planning. Yeah, so there was actually quite an interesting discussion of industry pushing back against government saying you can't just leave it to the market, you have a role to play, and community advocating for government to bring the right players together to have really honest conversations about what the change means and how regional communities can lead their own planning process on that, but government has a role in coordinating that. So we had local government saying, we're doing what we can, but there are some portfolios in federal and state government we don't get to control, so you actually have to help us lead our own planning processes around that. And then there were sort of more controversial conversations around democracy and um, you know, should we be looking at interest, some of the interesting democracy experiments happening around the world around citizens' assemblies and making decisions and participatory budgeting and using digital technology to enable much more direct influence over decisions? Uh, the, and that, that is actually really surprising. Uh, it's surprising. Where often industry will say, step out of the way and let us get on with that, that sort of <laughs> business. And um, Matt, how do you find that in... Because uh, you, you talk about... Uh, the role of being able to adapt, you know, getting regions to be adaptive. And that obviously is a role, in a sense, for government to do or to help. How do you actually help communities, particularly regional communities, which don't always have the resources of how does government take a role in helping communities be more adaptive? Yeah, great question, Alice, there. And I think, to be honest, um, if we had the perfect answer, uh, we would probably be in a slightly different situation um, today than we are. Um, I'll just very briefly touch on the idea in terms of overall goals around sustain a sustainable future economy. I think at that regional level, I think this does represent the, the measure of the adaptive capacity for the region, both be resilient in the face of challenges. And I think North Queensland, you know, with cyclones, floods, um, droughts at times, uh, obviously now COVID that the rest of Australia is sharing in has certainly had its share of that. And I think we have proven to have quite a resilient economy. Um, but then it's about this having the key um, stakeholders be equipped to adapt, to take advantage of change for positive outcomes. So when COVID has come along, what are those business models that are COVID resilient and how can we quickly shift to ensure that we quadruple down on those business models to help them absorb and grow and take in perhaps unemployed um, staff and or resources that are uh, being transitioned out of other parts of the economy. I think, you know, Amanda's work with Net the next sort of program has been, is one of the key initiatives around getting people to think around this. Um, for Townsville, uh, Townsville was the first city in Australia to have a city deal um, where we're seeking to align federal, state and local layers of government towards a long-term vision that goes beyond the political cycle. Now, uh, fantastically, um, the local leadership created a smart Townsville community partnership plan um, that I'm sure Amanda will be excited to know that it actually includes uh, an ambition towards participatory budgeting. Um, and I think this engaging the community 
in helping to um, determine that precious allocation of resources um, is critical to that path moving forward. And one of the things that Smart Precinct as a not-for-profit is incredibly grateful for is that we have received funding from Townsville City Council and the Queensland Department of State Development and Innovation specifically to play that catalytic role in supporting and attracting local high growth businesses to be globally competitive and to remain based in North Queensland. And I think it is that leadership and that vision that government does have that catalytic role in helping economy transition. But I also think we shouldn't forget um, it isn't about either market or government because government is such a large player in the market. Um, and I think some of, the, some of the work that Lara and the team at the, through social innovation at CQU have been talking about the role of government procurement to lead the market um, and give signals to the private sector in terms of where things are going. And I think, you know, I'm really excited that uh, there's some real commitment to exploring the future of energy around hydrogen in North Queensland, as well as supporting um, lithium ion battery plants and development. And so I think these things in combination with the macro and then finding those um, catalytic roles at the micro. And then I have to acknowledge the work of um, Queensland's chief entrepreneur, Leanne Kemp. Her and her team have been working alongside, you know, key players within the department um, like Sarah Pearson to ensure that the whole of the regional innovation ecosystem can work together. And I think this is the only way that we will succeed is not as isolated small cities, but as a network of innovation agents, um, sharing best practice, sharing procurement opportunities, um, and even importing um, best practice from overseas. Thank you for that. That's, uh, that's really interesting. And I'm just wondering if you'll note that all up and down the state of Queensland, there are a number of communities who are actively getting involved in hydrogen projects. So how do you, as a region, stop each particular region cannibalising each other? And, and, and the other one, of course, is that, that notion of smart precinct. The Townsville's, Townsville's done the smart precinct particularly well. Um, but it's not, the, it's not the first region that's talked about smart cities or smart regions. Almost every local authority used to talk about the smart city. I think Logan had trotted it out. But Townsville's managed to get that right. What are the ingredients for making sure that your region actually does things that actually work well so it's not just chasing the latest buzzword? Yeah, Alistair, I think you're talking about some of the um, really key challenges that face regional leadership, whether that's in academia or business or, you know, in our specific role. And I think it does take individuals with a vision beyond their own patch to reach out to other regions and say, how can we compete together? Um, and to be honest, I think there's actually some lessons that we could learn domestically from our cousins at DFAT and the broader international aid community when they do think at a, you know, multinational and regional level about how those systems work. Um, I am sure Amanda is going to have a far more nuanced um, and insightful perspective in terms of energy. Uh, so I will, I will pass that over to her. Um, but I think that we could spend a billion dollars poaching 
businesses out of Sydney and Melbourne and Singapore and San Francisco and Israel to come to Townsville. But if there isn't a long-term fundamental reason and advantage in them being here, that is not going to be money well spent. So understanding what are our potential strengths and how can we work within broader um, systems, I think is critically important. And I think this is where things like the advanced manufacturing play around IoT, not because of course you should have your IoT manufacturing in every regional city, but because if our primary producers and the um, mining and engineering services companies are coming up with ideas, having people locally that can turn that idea into a product that may then ultimately serve global markets is critical. And I think there's some really interesting plays going on around that advanced manufacturing locally. Excellent. Thank you for that. I just want to um, ask John, you, uh, you've been looking at regions for a long, long time now in the research that you do. Are you noticing different plays in the way the government is responding to the regions now? Is there more of a genuine shift or does government still, is still very um, metropolitan-centric in its sort of approach to doing things? And, and are communities in the regions, uh, are they have gotten into the swing of that? I think government pay a lot of lip service to regional development, but if you look at the outcomes, it's really not improving you know we're seeing a continued concentration into the urban areas it's partly of course driven by where the jobs and opportunities are but if you look at where um, the, the specialist services are if you look at the government investment is a lot of it's concentrated in metro areas so so just for instance in health queensland health spends millions of dollars to fly people to go to brisbane for treatment every year um, from all of these different regional cities. And so they, the whole, you know, the way the system's set up is to, to generate the specialist services in, in, in the capital and then bring everybody in. And that's happening across just about every sector of the economy that, that we're seeing that specialisation. And it always seems to end up being in the capital city. So one of my beefs from uh, at the moment, just to digress, is the, um, the inland rail proposal between Brisbane and Melbourne. Sounds great in theory, but in reality, what's happening in Brisbane is that they're busy planning for a lot of agricultural processing to be located in Brisbane, So because that'll be at the end of the railhead. So, so what's going to happen is that all of regional Australia between Melbourne and Brisbane will end up with the real value add coming to Brisbane and generated at the capital city. Um, so this is the, the outcome of, of what is quite faulty planning. We need things like the railhead should go to somewhere like Gladstone, you know, should, so that you, uh, into another port. You don't just automatically concentrate things in a capital city every time. So that, that's obviously clearly one of the challenges in making regions economically sustainable is not having enough of those sort of service delivery. I, there's always been government uh, moving services from time to time. Uh, government services tend to often move out. Uh, and I notice a lot of states have done this where they've moved government services out, but invariably they always tend to find their way back to metropolitan yeah. areas. Yeah. They don't seem to stick. And 
I did want to come back to that, Amanda. The uh, we, we talked about the energy and the, you know the hydrogen projects, and there are any number of those hydrogen projects which are again driven as a stimulus project uh, for regions. Um, and, and resource sector is a really big sector for Queensland. It drives a lot of the economy for uh, the revenue for our economy. Um, but you still see this fly-in, fly-out mentality. Uh, and I'm sure when you talk to business and government, that still is a, you know, you don't build community strong when the, the people who are driving the, the, the functions of those regions are flying in, doing the work and flying back out, and communities don't see the benefit of that. Um, what sort of feedback are you getting? I think that's the choice of the moment, and particularly with the billions of dollars that are going to be spent around economic recovery, like what are we investing in? So there is an actual, there is the opportunity to invest in, in people being in place rather than... So it's interesting, there's a lot of discussion um, in the forums that we've done this year around learning the lessons from the LNG expansion. Like in terms of what we need to do with renewable energy, even if modestly we're accepting the current government's plan to get to 50% renewable energy by 2030, there's a huge amount of construction work that needs to be done to get us up to that level. Now, are we going to be investing in building those skills up regionally or are we just going to do the fly in, fly out thing again? And, you know, the implications of that, the money doesn't stay in the region. So um, there's issues around particularly renewable energy construction um, that a lot of the jobs around construction are short term, but there are actually a lot of jobs, ongoing jobs and maintenance and operations once they're up and running. Um, so it's about how do we get the right mix. It's about how do we do that planning over a 10-year period of time to get us to where we need to go. But also thinking about the future of mining and a lot of talk around diversifying our mining in, in Queensland. So the really good news around investing in the Copper String 2.0 project to link the transmission line to link Mount Isa and Townsville opens up a lot of opportunities in terms of um, minerals processing and actually keeping things like the copper refinery in Townsville competitive um, internationally if it can access that renewable energy. So again, it's like, what are we investing in? What are we exploring? Um, it's not just the resources sector, but which parts of the resources sector um, are we investing in for the future? And how do we link all of those pieces up? Yeah, I think um, it, it was certainly very telling yesterday, the Treasurer, uh, Queensland Treasurer announced that there would be investment into uh, particularly energy alternative renewable energies. And so, I mean, hopefully we might see some of that investment go into the regions. Uh, I, I'm interested, there's been a lot of talk at a national level about Australia's over-reliance on manufacturing from outside of the country and that we've become very much a, a net importer of technology and manufactured products. Uh, do you think COVID has perhaps given an opportunity for us to think more seriously about bringing some of that manufacturing back? Um, there's actually a lot of talk last year, even before the bushfires, around the fact that regions have become more vulnerable. So there was a sense that people were saying that a lot of the services have been ripped out and taken away. Um, from regional centres and, and people felt that they were actually more resilient in the past than they are now. Um, so in terms of services, in terms of local manufacturing. So those were already themes that were coming out and then post the bushfires when we did the forums starting in February this year and even before COVID, um, there was even more focus on um, the importance of things being decentralised to actually be able to withstand a whole lot of external shocks. COVID has just added another layer on top of that in terms of global financial 
pressure and shocks and not being able to access those global supply chains. So I think the conversation has been building and now it's like, and people are saying, we just don't have what we need locally to withstand a whole lot of different external shocks. Now's the time to invest in people, in services, in infrastructure. So we can actually provide what we need, the basics that we need as a starting point and then build on those strengths to then be able to export out. John, um, any views on that? I think that it's it's often very difficult for Australia to just compete in the manufacturing area. That's not going to change. Um, just looking at what happens in other countries, manufacturing works or grows well when you get um, a very strong network of firms that are good at making things and a very long history of skills development. So uh, you don't just start a manufacturing uh, hub from nothing. Um, you've got to build and it takes a long time to grow it. So I think that the trick with the, for the regions to do this is to find an area where they think that there is some potential for manufacturing um, that will build on, on one of their local capabilities or their local strengths, and then to concentrate on that rather than just advertising for any manufacturing business to come. So, for instance, in Mackay, it could be um, uh, machinery in the mining sector or something like that. Um, so it's got, to be, it's got to build on a local need and, and a local strength. Can I just add to what John was saying? Yeah, sure. I think that there is a shift, though, um, as I definitely agree with what you're saying. I guess the like joining what you're saying, what Matt's saying, though, there is an emerging opportunity that, has, that means that we are competitive in a way that we haven't been before. So if you can bring the energy prices down, which renewable energy can, um, if that's planned and managed appropriately as we transition from coal-based electricity to renewables, um, you've got pretty much zero energy cost. You've got the digital technology, the automation coming online, which then replaces that labour cost. So for the first time in a long time, Australia has a chance to be competitive in a way that it hasn't been before. And I think that's the interesting question that is a question at the moment as to yes. whether we can take advantage of that. But yeah, we've got to build on what's there. And I guess that gets back to that question of how adaptive communities can actually be, whether they can actually realise the opportunity and whether they can they can adapt quickly enough to uh, to be competitive in those sorts of environments. Um, Matt Townsville has a has a long history of supporting a lot of the resource activities. It has a it has a large fly in fly out workforce that live there, but also has a ports and has a large industrial sort of. Um, environment. Uh, how are you seeing that discussions around the manufacturing development of new manufacturing opportunities? Is it is it part of the conversation in that region? Yeah, I think absolutely, and I think part of it does go back to the idea of um, sovereign capability, and probably I think rather than it being idealistic, it's actually about appropriately pricing in downside risk on some of these elements and I think then understanding what is the value to the economy and to businesses more broadly of having locally skilled um, talented people and then companies and then ecosystems that can generate new ideas generate new productivity um, that can uh, solve things for a local context that you might not get um, out of a uh, manufacturer that's you know thousands of kilometres away, and I think to John's point about needing 
a critical mass of the right types of people and companies before you see success in things like advanced manufacturing ecosystems um, is something that I think we're all beginning to understand better. I think even the most sort of far right thinkers are having a discussion that perhaps we have met some of the limitations or some of the downsides in unfettered um, global trade without a consideration for having capabilities available um, to you onshore in terms of resilience. Um, and whilst I think I'm a big believer in elements of participatory budgeting in terms of helping people to make choices, where particularly where there is opportunity cost over sort of precious dollars in terms of how it affects them, we also begin to see the success of market um, economies like Singapore where there is very, very clear and very deliberate leadership around items like energy. I don't have all the answers, but in the places that I've lived, I think it is hard. You need to have a, a situation where the state and local markets can work together. And I think we could do a lot better in planning out a total regional economy. And I think, you know, what we've seen have happened with the NBN we probably need to be thinking about in terms of other core enabling infrastructure for regions. Oh, that's a really fascinating point. Um, it's interesting, we, uh, this is a university-led discussion, uh, and uh, we haven't really talked a lot about the role of universities in the regions at this point in time. And perhaps if you can just uh, tell us, what do you see as a change in role of universities and where do you think the gaps are between what universities are currently doing to prepare young people for skills in the future? Yeah, one of the really strong themes that came out of um, all of the regions that we worked in was the role of the local university, so CQU, in, when we were in Rocky and Gladstone and, um, and JCU in, in North Queensland. But it was really interesting. It wasn't just talking about workforce development. Um, people talked about the important role that universities play as kind of a hub for bringing people together to work out problems locally or do that planning and work with local government and other players um, as, a, as a facility, um, actually physically having a lot of resources that communities use um, as a procurer of services and actually supporting the local economy um, and, and working very closely with industry, of course, around research and development and, and being able to respond, as Matt was saying, to, to what's needed locally. I think there's still challenges ahead, but I think regional universities play an incredibly important role in helping communities manage change. Excellent. Uh, John, I wonder if I could just ask you the, the, the similar question. How, how do you see the role of universities in the region? I'm going to be a lot more provocative here, Alistair. Um, I read that um, our response, is, and this is a global response to, to COVID, is we are really protecting our old population and putting all the costs in our young population. So young people are out of jobs, they're out of work, they're not able to socialise, a lot of them are locked out of education a bit at the moment, and, and really big impacts on their careers. Um, and it's, it's the other way around from what normally happens in times of crisis. Normally when you have a big depression or a war or something, it changes the wealth distribution in society. And it's the people who've got skills and education and can find new opportunities, they're the ones who flourish. And at the moment, we're not unlocking that in our society. So 
So I think the big challenge we've got in Australia is how do we give young people a go? So that's, that's something that government, I think, should be paying more attention to. But at the university sector, uh, I think universities have got a role in trying to train young people and not just train them to have a job or a profession, but train them to think about, well, what's, what's society going to look like in the future? Where are the opportunities in the future? Because it's not going to be the same. And, and at the moment, we're missing that spark a little bit, I think. Uh, that's a that's a uh, that's a great conversation to actually make people think about as they uh, go beyond this conversation. I think, but certainly is a debate on that one all on its own, John. So thank you for that those comments. Um, we're coming to the end of our, our conversation, folks, and so uh, perhaps uh, by way of wrapping up, can I thank our three speakers uh, today? I think the topic was pretty. Um, uh, far-reaching sort of discussion. There's lots of areas that we could certainly branched off on today uh, and had a very deep discussion about each of those particular areas. So uh, Amanda Cahill, John Rolfe and Matt Stein, thank you very much for your contribution today. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.